You watch like bullshit TV shit 24-7. You're addicted to your elf, uh, uh, iPhone and you think uh, the world is uh, digital and your friends too. But then when you get pummeled and uh, somebody wants to pummel you, you will see that your iPhone friends or Facebook friends are actually not really helping you at all with nobody. I just watched La La Land and I would say... I mean, I got like 11 Oscar nomination whatsoever. And I can say that basically only in German. Like, wollt ihr mich verarschen? Ich, was soll denn diese Scheiße? So, translating in English means, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, uh, 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 movies like this, getting Oscar nominations, it's sensational on what lower end we're already settling. I mean, Moonlight was, to be honest, okay movie of the week, maybe a lifetime movie of the week, like pathetic. It was not, it was just boring, it had no ending, no climax, nothing. Moonlight was, not, was nothing. Nothing. You know, it's just unbelievable what movies getting automated for an Oscar. Like, we have to find some movies that don't hurt anybody. Here, your host for Mech in the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten, and the unforgettable. I hope my American listeners had a pleasant Thanksgiving and that you indulge yourself in some good food and good company. Uh, may this episode provide some amusement on this Black Friday. On this giant size episode, I will be doing five good films of Uwe Boll and five bad films of Uwe Boll. Yes, believe it or not, the man has a few good films. Well, I don't know, I guess you could say maybe three or four, but I threw one extra in there, uh, up his filmography sleeve. In addition to the ten reviews, I'll have a special Three Tenors episode on animated characters. That will be the family-friendly portion of the show today. Before we get into the films, let's take a look at the man himself. Uwe Boll was born on June 22, 1965, in West Germany. At 10 years old, he knew he wanted to be a filmmaker after seeing the 1962 version of Mutiny on the Bounty, starring Marlon Brando. He studied at the University of Cologne. His first two films were a horror film, Black Woods, and the drama, Heart of America. He's likely best known for his numerous video game adaptations. He was able to make those films despite declining box office returns due to German tax benefits for filmmaking. In his words, Maybe you'll know, but it's not easy to finance movies in total. And the reason I'm able to do these kinds of movies is I have a tax shelter fund in Germany. And if you invest in a movie in Germany, you basically get 50% back from the government. Eventually, the poor returns from his films and the changing landscape of film distribution drove Bull into retirement. He opened his own German food restaurant, Bauhaus, in Vancouver, British Columbia. His restaurant was met with great success and positive criticism. This surprise led him to say, It's interesting, right? I had to open a restaurant to get good reviews. For the movie reviews of this episode, I'm going to start with a good film, then a bad film. This rotation will continue for the duration of the Uwe Boll portion uh, before the three tenors. Uh, they're in no particular order, for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> 
Postal opens with two terrorists who have hijacked an airplane and are going to crash it to earn their martyrdom. One mentions that they are going to get 100 versions, while the other was told they were going to get 99. This dispute leads them to calling Osama bin Laden himself to clarify the actual number of versions. Due to all the other martyrs, the only guaranteed number of versions is 10 for both of them. After this revelation, they change their mind and are going to inform the passengers that they're going to the Bahamas. But it's too late and the passengers invade the cockpit, causing the plane to crash into one of the Twin Towers. Then we meet Postal Dude, who is dealing with a lot of bad luck. He failed a job interview, he got kicked out of the unemployment office, his obese wife is cheating on him with the neighbors. His way out of this rut comes when he has to help his uncle Dave, who owes millions in back taxes to the federal government. They plan to steal a shipment of crotchy dolls that are the popular toy at the moment and worth a lot of money. Unfortunately, Al-Qaeda is after the same shipment. It's a race between Postal Dude's team and Al-Qaeda to the Little Germany Amusement Park, owned by Uwe Boll, which is where the crotchy dolls are being sent. What follows is more chaos and insanity than one might expect. And there is no shortage of taboo material. Dolls modeled after penises, Vern Troyer is paid in gold teeth for his appearance at Little Germany, kids are killed in droves, full frontal nudity by Dave Foley, This film is not for the easily offended. I put Postal as the first good film to review because this was the film that caused everyone to take a second look at Bull as a director. After multiple attempts at video game movies that were money losses, he made a film that was actually good. It managed to be a clever post-9-11 satire using a well-known video game that made daring jokes at the time. Before this film, I don't recall many people joking about George W. Bush and Osama Bin Laden being buddies. Now, it has a 7% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but their credibility has long been shot. I'm not even going to mention the aggregate scores for any episode of this podcast. Even some of the critics at the time couldn't help but give positive reviews. Kurt Loder of MTV News enjoyed the film. G4 gave respectable for such a film. G4 is even more amusing considering that their year-in-review episodes... They have a category for bad games called Games Likely to be Made into an Uwe Boll Film. Boll makes a brief appearance as the owner of Little Germany as well as directorial duties. He's not above making fun of himself, so I have to give props for that. In the film, he even gets shot in the crotch. He set out to make an offensive sociopolitical satire, and he succeeded. The cast for this film is star-studded. Zach Ward comes off as a parody of Michael Douglas's William Foster in Falling Down, the supporting cast features the likes of Dave Foley, J.K. Simmons, Vern Troyer, Larry Thomas, David Huddleston, Seymour Cassell, Raph Muller, and Michael Paré. For most of them, this may just be a paycheck movie, but they add a lot of star power. Postal was a surprise for many, and the humor still holds up. Once in a while, a blind man with a machine gun eventually hits the target. One time, bullseye at that. Postal is that bullseye. What part of shove off didn't you understand? Oh, that. Jeez, who's the U boat commander? Cuando más? No. Uh, what? How much? Uh, $300 now, fair? Uh, about 600 mine. 600 No, no way. That's crazy. No one no. is talking to you. Where are you headed, girls? Huh? I don't know. We got this map. It's uh, somewhere in the San Juans. You must know where that is, right, Skipper? You crazy? They crazy. No, I don't think so. Excuse me? I said forget it. Yeah, forget it. Forget it. 
That means stop talking. Start walking. Why? 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 They always ask why. You know what they call this island? Isla del Morte. Morte? That's Spanish for death. In case you don't speak Mexican. Well, listen, friend, I got me an island of cash right here, and if this is some lame attempt to hit me up for more cash... No, it ain't. There ain't enough cash in the world to make us go back there. Nah. Keep the cash. Keep the cash. Fuck it, a grand. You say 500 now, and another five on the way back. You can be mighty persuasive if you want to be Mr. Uh... Cruz. Simon Cruz. And you are? Kirk's the name. Captain Kirk. Does it make you Mr. Spock? I don't like no Captain Kirk jokes. Let's shove up. A group of teens were running late and were trying to make their way off an island off the coast of Seattle, Washington. On that island, a rave is going to be held. However, the island is said to be cursed. The boat originally meant to take the group has already left. One boat remained at the dock, but the captain and his first mate refused to go due to the curse. After an offer of $1,000, the captain reluctantly agrees to take them. They arrive and find the rave site in bad shape. The group splits up, always a solid idea, and they go to look for the others. The pair that stays behind go into a tent to make out. That couple splits up, with the girl in the tent being killed by zombies. The island was cursed due to the work of a priest, Castillo Sermano. He was working on the means of immortality and necromancy. He was able to live forever and create an army of zombies at his command. The group must fend off the zombies for any hope of survival. House of the Dead was the film that put Uwe Boll on the radar of many. Looking back now, this is the least terrible of his video game films. It has a B-movie feel to it that plays more into zombie movies of the 1980s, Return of the Living Dead immediately comes to mind. The tone for this film comes as no surprise considering Dave Parker was the co-writer of the film's script. This tone for the film comes as no surprise considering Dave Parker was a co-writer for the film's script. Parker was the mind behind the full moon film The Dead Hate the Living. That film was a homage to the likes of Lucio Fulci and Dario Argento. The movie references, especially those related to George A. Romero, are Parker's calling card. Hindsight is 2020. It made sense why investors would put their money towards this film and why Sega would grant their, their license to Bowl. A year earlier, the first Resident Evil film from director Paul W.S. Anderson with Mila Jovovich was released and was a $100 million hit on a $30 million budget. So why not support House of the Dead? Being a Canadian production, you'll see a lot of Canadian actors. Jonathan Cherry of Final Destination 2 and Wolf Cop is here. We saw Michael Eklund in a few Stone Cold Steve Austin movies from episode 10. Video game actor Adam Harrington of L.A. Noir and God of War makes a brief appearance. Clint Howard and Jurgen Prochnow chew the scenery as Salish and Captain Victor Kirk. Keep an eye out for Biff Naked as a DJ and Fingoria editor Tommy Timpone cameos as a zombie. House of the Dead isn't the worst Uwe Boll film, but it is far from the best. It's middle ground. I don't hate it, but I don't love it either. I'm bringing this one up just to show how bad he would be in the video game films he would make after this one. Hey buddy, a little bit peckish. You got something to eat? Why don't you get me the, the best sandwich you got? The best, tastiest sandwich you got. 
What do you got to drink? Iced tea? That looks like shit. Here you go. It's a nice hairnet. You make you wear that? Yeah, thanks. Free of charge, just... Oh, good. I completely forgot my wallet. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you for coming to Tenderville Bingo, where everyone's a winner. Bill Williamson is a 23-year-old living with his parents in Tenderville, Oregon. He works a job as a mechanic, but is repeatedly denied a raise. He only hangs out with his one friend, Evan. In addition to these day-to-day stresses, he consistently hit with fatalistic messages from the media. He reaches a breaking point. He makes his own bulletproof suit. He buys submachine guns, semi-automatic pistols, and knives. He goes on a mass shooting, taking out anyone in his way. He disables communication for the police. He robs a bank. He soon realizes the human population needs to be downsized. Rampage is a contrast in tone to Postal, which Bull made two years earlier. But Rampage makes its own sociopolitical messages with a darker, humorless feel. That attitude gives Rampage a car crash sensation. You want to look away, but you can't. You're forced to follow this character as he engages in ultraviolence on this unprepared, unarmed populace. Bull's commenting on society was ahead of its time. Case in point, the bingo scene. Bill is in the midst of his killing spree when he stops in a bingo hall. As he walks around, the bingo players pay no attention. He's armed to the teeth, and these people are too involved in their game to notice their lives are in danger. It isn't until Bill disrupts their game that the players notice him. Then he has their undivided attention. Even after he leaves, the people still look at the door. Then the bingo caller gives the next number and the players immediately focus on their boards again. Replace the bingo boards with smartphones and you have a more contemporary scenario. This 10-year-old movie could easily have been made today and still not lose its punch. In addition to the messaging, Bull manages to make a fantastic suspense sequence. Bill makes his way into a salon. He has the girls huddled in a corner of the interior. He takes off his helmet to take a drink, then begins to leave. He stops, realizing the girls could identify him, turns around, and has to kill all of them. But during all that time, Bull teases you in thinking that this moment Bill shows mercy and considered letting innocent people live. Yet, because Bill took off his own mask, he exposed himself, these people must die, and through Bill's own miscalculation. Rampage shows Bull evolved as a filmmaker. He directed, produced, and wrote this film. Normally, that's a bad sign, i.e. Freddy Got Fingered, which was directed, produced, and written by Tom Green. Yet, Bull proved his naysayers wrong with this one. Brendan Fletcher plays Bill Williamson for the first of three times, also serving as co-writer for the latter two entries in the Rampage series. Fletcher also appeared in the divisive Terry Gilliam film Tideland. He was also in Freddy vs. Jason and The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio. In supporting roles, you have Bull regular Michael Poiré as a sheriff. Max Headroom himself, Matt Frewer, plays Bill's father. Brent Hodges, Evan. Hodge has found a career as a documentary filmmaker. I recommend I Am Chris Farley. Keep an eye out for Catherine Isabella of Ginger Snaps fame as one of the stylists. Rampage makes for an interesting double bill with Postal. Two men at the end of their rope and take desperate measures. This is a tough movie to watch for the subject matter, but it is a film worth seeing because Bull provides some food for thought. But this is a tough pill to swallow for what Bull presents. 
one that has become more relevant in the last 10 years. What I have to say is very important. I had to kill a lot of people and I will get myself killed to get on your television. I want to give you the facts. The U.S. government is funded by the rich. They create the illusion that anything is possible. They want people thinking that they are free and can do whatever they want, but they can't. The people that are representing you are bought and paid for to keep you stupid. that every war was about money and the stupid people must die because the elite decided this is a mind-controlled dictatorship in the costume of democracy we need to cleanse people we need to destroy that system but i cannot do this work alone we need to kill the rich i need you now we need to do this together I want to make you wake up and change. Thank you. Years after committing a mass shooting in Tenderville, Bill Williamson is in hiding. He's been uploading messages on the internet, continuing to spread his message about violent population control. These videos have turned him into an internet celebrity. With the money stolen in the previous film, he's ready to finance another attack. Bill makes his way to Washington, D.C. He enters a TV station and starts shooting random personnel. Bill takes any survivors, including news anchor Chip Parker, into the basement. He uses this opportunity to further spread his manifesto, all while keeping tabs on the police that have set up outside the basement. Going back to the first sequel to Rampage, Capital Punishment, I can't help but feel Bull was taking notes from another sociopolitical filmmaker that was becoming famous in his own right. Neil Breen. The same Neil Breen that gave us Double Down, Fateful Findings, and Twisted Pair. Double Down came out in 2007, two years before Rampage. Breen brought corruption in the government and corporations to the attention of his audience. Now we have Bull working alongside similar lines. Rampage Capital Punishment came out the same year as Fateful Findings. Pass Through came out in 2016, as did Rampage President Down. With pass-through, Breen seemed to follow Bull's lead with the violent population control. I feel like Bull is up on a podium lecturing us instead of taking the subtle approach of the last film. There's no standout sequence like the bingo hall or the salon from the last film. It doesn't help that Bull plays a producer at the TV station. I'll get into that in a bit. Capital Punishment has a few nice callbacks to the previous film. One of the hostages is a sister to a victim in the Tenderville shooting. The police try to use Bill's father to help defuse the hostage situation. Bull manages to direct, co-write, and cast himself in a supporting role as the station producer. This was as cringe as when Tom Six appeared as himself in Human Centipede 3. Six was in a scene being praised by characters he wrote for, essentially patting himself on the back in front of the camera. Such self-flattery is too egotistical for my taste. Bull as the TV producer is in the same vein when he watches Bill's manifesto and tells himself he's absolutely right. Bull's self-sense of aggrandizing his writing is as eye-rolling as you could imagine. Brendan Fletcher returns as Bill Williamson as well as serving as a co-writer with Bull. But he's not as interesting a character as he was in the previous Rampage. 
he doesn't have a moment where he's humanized like in the bingo hall salon or in the build-up to his shooting. He wasn't an appealing character before, but the hammering over the head of the politics is more detrimental than beneficial. He now serves as a mouthpiece for Bull's sanctimonious lectures. In supporting roles, you have the aforementioned Bull, but also Lachlan Monroe as Chip Parker, the news anchor. Monroe appeared in a number of films, uh, Dead Man on Campus, Scary Movie, Freddy vs. Jason. Unlike those films, Monroe isn't obnoxious and he takes the material and capital punishment seriously. Rampage Capital Punishment takes the goodwill of the previous film and wastes it away on political messaging that is inorganically integrated into a tense hostage movie. Bull and Fletcher take an interesting character and reduce him to a ventriloquist dummy for Bull to speak out of. Not everything needs a sequel, and Rampage was certainly one of those films. What's our risk? Twelve billion. It's time to dump the certificates. Right now. All right, let's go, people. Let's go, let's go, let's go. The bank calls. What's going on with my funds? Your notes been delisted from the exchange. I've lost all my money. Our priority is saving this company, not the clients. You can declare bankruptcy. So you should have me. I'll file a loss. I'll get my money back. I'm sorry, Jim. Sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. It's the banks. I'm going to get the money back. I'm going to fix this. Is someone targeting Wall Street? This is not a game, Jimmy. This is my life. Wall Street. Bow, bow. We're still far too exposed. I'm going to take care of that. I've been watching you. You cook the books to get your bonuses. Why should I let you live? You like competition? I love competition. Just you and me? I can't wait. Personal protection? For fun. A on Wall Street begins in the 2008 financial crisis, which was started by the subprime mortgage crisis in 2007. This was followed by massive bailouts for the banks because, you know, too big to fail. A portfolio manager demands his employees dump certificates and pension funds in order to save their company. Jim Baxford is a soldier and armored car driver. He has a lot on his mind. His wife is recovering from surgery for a brain tumor. Health insurance has reached its maximum for her post-op treatment. He tries to cash in his military pension but has no money due to bad investments by his financial advisor. His advisor is also the cause for Baxford to be slapped with a $60,000 lawsuit. Baxford tries to hire a lawyer but that lawyer refuses as does the assistant district attorney. He's soon fired because he can't be trusted with large sums of money due to his financial situation. After sudden tragedy, he arms himself to the teeth and brings a war to the white collars on Wall Street. All of it building up to a face-to-face confrontation with the portfolio manager we see from the start of the film. Assault on Wall Street is bull switching gears from Rampage. Instead of a socio-political thriller where the protagonist takes out the general populace, mostly innocent people, here the protagonist takes out bankers, Wall Street bigwigs, high-profile executives, This is an eat-the-rich film, a Death Wish revenge fantasy for those victims of the 2008 financial crisis. I'm not going to lie, I really liked it. In fact, it was one of my top films of 2013. 
It's hard for me to sympathize with those that are targeted in this film, especially with how their choices led to Baxford's situation. These are people who will take a profit if it means stabbing the American people in the back. When Baxford starts taking down white collars, I can't help but genuinely cheer. I relate to Baxter feeling cheated because I and many others are dealing with school loans. We were sold on the notion that a piece of paper was valuable and that there would be plenty of jobs available in our fields. We dropped a lot of money, took out hefty loans, graduated, only to find out that there are no jobs in our fields available. And these institutions keep pumping out graduates and there are no jobs for them. I consider myself thankful I'm on a loan forgiveness program and in 20 years I will be free of all my college loan debt. Dominic Purcell and Aaron Karpluk play the Baxfords and they come off like any family in middle America. They're dealing with the same struggles that any family was hit hard with by the financial crisis. I'm not familiar with Carpluck, but Purcell made a name for himself with the hit TV show Prison Break, and his recurring role is Heatwave in the CW-verse, or whatever it's called. The sporting cast here rivals that of Postal. John Hurd, Edward Furlong, Keith David, Michael Pere, Lachlan Monroe, Clint Howard, and Eric Roberts. A lot of great talent. Assault on Wall Street is a satisfying action thriller with a good build and fast-paced climax. It's a movie with a message, but the message doesn't overtake the film. A good cast goes a long way. Well worth watching. The President of the United States is dead. The nation is in shock. I tried to show you the world for what it is, and you stood idly by. You people, you're obsessed with violence. You're focused on my body count rather than what I was telling you. You tried to catch me before. What's going to change now? It's Bill Williams. Oh, he's alive? He wants us to follow him. He's getting ready for us. It's you and me. Your best men. A lot of followers out there. They know where you live. Say goodbye to your families. Hey, Bill! We're right here, buddy! You want to be a man and come out? Okay, welcome to Camp Bill. Washington, D.C. spree at the TV station, Bill Williamson was presumed dead. Yet, he returned to hiding. A couple of years later, Bill comes out of hiding and manages to assassinate the president, vice president, and the secretary of defense. This leads to a manhunt for Bill, one he doesn't expect to walk away from alive. During this time, Bill has continued his rise as a self-appointed online voice for the downtrodden and struggling. He calls upon them to kill celebrities, the rich, the politicians. Now he's developed a following waiting for a signal to commit such violence. Yes, the final Rampage film can be filed as a bad film in Bull's filmography. Also of note, this was the film that drove Bull into retirement, thus allowing him to pursue his dream of opening a German restaurant in Canada. To that, I salute Bull for finding a passion that allows him to find happiness in the food industry. 
What makes Rampage President Down a bad movie is that so much happens that strikes me as unrealistic. I can't help but frequently say to myself, nah, that's too unbelievable. Bill manages to have a mole in the FBI who communicates with him while on the premises of the FBI headquarters. You don't think they're going to keep an eye on the communications that go in and out of their area? The mole manages to sneak a bug into the same office. Even being able to kill the president, vice president, and secretary of defense, given the overabundance of security for these officials in the last two decades, sorry, I don't buy it. This nerfing of government entities doesn't help to make Bill look clever. Your protagonist is only as good as his opposition. If you have the FBI made to look incompetent, then there's no risk or stakes. If Bill can run free in Washington, D.C. in front of a plethora of cameras without being quickly taken down or any threat of recognition by the public, then why should I care? Another issue is Bill Williamson as a character. In the first film, he went only after adults. Here, he's threatening an FBI agent with killing his family, including his adolescent daughter. All the while, Bill has a child of his own. Then again, this hypocrisy was hinted in the final scene of the previous Rampage film, where Bill offers a gun to a young girl. He tells her to kill her parents and then kill herself. He's beyond the point of being a tolerable character. There's not much else to say about this film. Bull seemed to know this was his last film as a director. Other than Brandon Fletcher as Bill Williamson, none of the other casts really stand out. Since there's no real threat to Bill Williamson, safer at the very end, there's no emotional engagement to be had with Rampage President Down. The sudden reversal in weather systems which began six months ago continues to wreak havoc around the globe. Thousands of communities isolated by washed out highways. Many roads have disappeared altogether. I can't get any of the neighbors on the phone. your pride refuses to seek him, I suggest you start right here. The moon became his blood. The stones of heaven fell onto the earth. He's crazy, you know that, right? What's gonna happen? Is the world gonna end? Is it all gonna blow up? You know something, you ain't letting on. Pacific Northwest, the Grady family are waiting out a storm. Media reports of natural disasters all over the world keep coming in. Suddenly, the power goes out and they make the best of the situation. 
Graham, the son of the family, sees a man approaching the farm. The stranger enters before passing out in the living room. Tom and Jillian get the man up to a bed. While getting him set up for rest, they see strange tattoos all over his body. The man regains consciousness and identifies himself as Solas. He says that he should remain on the farm so they can watch over each other. Tom becomes suspicious of Silas after finding a newspaper article regarding Silas and his father. Turns out Silas's father was the previous owner of the farm. The father was an alcoholic, which led him to losing the farm. This angered Silas so much he murdered his father. With all this happening, Tom notices the town is empty and had to fight off random strangers. In addition to the weather phenomena, could this be the end of the world? The Final Storm is a tight domestic thriller that recalls films like Night of the Hunter and Cape Fear. In the background, you have events that could be hinted at at the apocalypse. With a minimal cast and single setting, Bull manages to make a tense film that is a bit by the numbers. With regards to Bull, by the numbers is actually better than usual. Bull wasn't the writer for this film. That credit goes to Tim McGregor. Uh, the only other film I'm familiar with of his is Bitten starring Kevin Smith, hombre, Jason Mewes as a paramedic who takes in a woman who might be a vampire. Steve Bocic plays the head of the Grady household. He does a fine job of being the paranoid, overprotective patriarch of the family. We saw him in the Stone Cold Steve Austin film Tactical Force. He had a quick cameo as Hank McCoy, a.k.a. Beast of the X-Men, in X2. The lovely Lauren Holly plays Jillian. 16 years after her breakout role in Dumb and Dumber, she can still turn heads. Here, she plays the housewife unaware of the danger that has entered her home. This adds to the tension. Luke Perry steals the film as Silas, the stranger who made himself at home at the farm. Perry was clearly drawn from Robert Mitchum as Harry Powell and Robert De Niro as Max Cady, which, funny enough, was a Robert Mitchum character in the original Cape Fear. One moment, Perry as Elias is a charmer, the next he's menacing. He's pretty much the only reason to see this film, an underrated performance from an underrated actor. The Final Storm is a well-paced thriller with great performances by Luke Perry that should be all the reason you need to see this film. Edward. That's right in our area, isn't it? Detective Edward Carnby is trying to piece together his past, all while researching an 
ancient civilization, the Abkhani. Due to mysterious circumstances, he is sensitive to supernatural phenomena. Turns out there are artifacts of the Abkhani at the Museum of Natural History. After an attack on the museum, Carnby and his girlfriend team up with Carnby's old unit at Bureau 713. Carnby frequently butts heads with his successor, Commander Richard Burke. Now they must work together in order to stop an otherworldly invasion through a portal created by Abkhani artifacts. When it comes to video game adaptations directed by Uwe Boll, Alone in the Dark ranks as one of the worst. Much like with House of the Dead, Boll tossed aside the narrative of the source material in favor of a film that he thought would appeal to mainstream audiences. Alone in the Dark eschews the slower pacing of the Lovecraft-inspired source material in favor of confusingly shot action sequences more along the lines of Aliens. According to Blair Erickson, writer of the first drafts of the film, he stated in a SomethingAwful.com interview, The original script took the Alone in the Dark premise and depicted it as if it were actually based on a true story of a private investigator in the northeastern U.S., whose missing persons cases begin to uncover a disturbing paranormal secret. It was told through the eyes of a writer following Edward Carnby and his co-worker for a novel and depicted them as real-life blue-collar folks who never expected to find hideous beings waiting for them in the dark. We tried to stick close to the H.P. Lovecraft style and the low-tech nature of the original game, always keeping the horror in the shadows so you never saw what was coming for them. Somehow dissatisfied with the results, Erickson was removed from the project and replaced with writers catering to Bull's own vision with the film. Thankfully, Dr. Bull was able to hire his loyal team of hacks to crank out something much better than our crappy story and add in all sorts of terrifying horror movie essentials like opening gateways to alternate dimensions, bimbo blonde archaeologists, sex scenes, mad scientists, slimy dog monsters, special army... Special Army Forces designed to battle slimy CGI dog monsters, Tara Reed, Matrix slow motion gun battles, and car chases. Oh yeah, and a 10 minute opening backstory scroll read aloud to the illiterate audience, the only people able to successfully miss all the negative reviews. I mean, hell, Bull knows that's where the real scares lie. The film is infamous for one continuity flaw. One of the Bureau 713 agents are killed. Just before the film cuts to the next scene, we can see her tilt her head up. Of all the takes of that shot, that's the one Bull kept in the film. Christian Slater does his best with the material he's given as Carnby. Slater has an interesting body of work to his name. Uh, There's The Name of the Rose, The Legend of Billie Jean, Cuffs, The Wizard... Ferngully, Interview with a Vampire, Robot Chicken, Archer, Mr. Robot, some some interesting stuff. Tara Reed is an odd casting as a museum curator. According to internet rumor and innuendo, Bull and Reed hated working together. It got to a point where Bull made an edit of Alone in the Dark that completely removed Reed's character. Steven Dorf as Commander Burke comes off as assertive and in control. He makes a nice contrast to Slater's Carnby. Dorf has been part of the genre scene for a long time, going all the way back to 1987's The Gate. He's been in Judgment Night, Blade with Wesley Snipes, the John Waters classic Cecil B. Demented, and The Iceman. 
If you're up for some unintentional comedy, then you might find a lot of fun in Alone in the Dark. It's a perfect example of how film can take source material and completely mess it up. Well worth it as a proverbial cinematic car crash. Right now, you in Vietnam. I ain't walking them fouls, but it looks like something, does it? <coughs> My mom would kill me if she saw me doing this. This place is all about survival. You look in the Bible, Joshua is ordered to slay every man, woman, child, cattle, and slave with his enemy. We open our first tunnel tomorrow. We found this tunnel yesterday, just before sundown. Volunteers. Got it, sir. I'll go first. Five bucks for a dead goat. Tunnel Rats centers on a squad whose duty was to enter the various underground channels made by the Viet Cong. Members of the squad had to clear them out of any enemy presence. American troops going into the tunnels had no idea of what to expect. Not only is the threat underground, but above ground as well. The camp made by the U.S. soldiers is attacked by Viet Cong. Desperate, Lieutenant Holloborn calls in for an airstrike. By the time the airstrike arrives, it may be too late. I can't imagine actually being given this task in the midst of the Vietnam War. Being a tunnel rat was a real thing. You were expected to go into these close quarters with only a knife, pistol, and a flashlight. The Viet Cong had the tactical advantage and even the psychological advantage. The only assignment I could think of being worse is having a flamethrower strapped on your back. Unlike other Vietnam-set films, there's no wall-to-wall period soundscape. I like that. When other films have to give you the constant reminders of the time period or cliched uses of Hendrix or CCR, Bull only uses one piece of music. In the year 2525 by Zayer and Evans. I say wrote in air quotes because there wasn't dialogue as much as the actors just improvised the dialogue. 
For many of these actors, Tonorettes was their first gig and they managed to carry the film. Some of them are awkward in their delivery, but that adds a sense of realism. These guys are 8,500 miles away from home in a foreign land, facing an enemy that could attack at any time. That awkwardness can be interpreted as fear. The biggest star of Tonorettes isn't Bull or any of the cast. Cinematographer Matthias Newman captures the claustrophobia of navigating the tunnels. The close-ups and confined nature of the tunnels really gets to you after a while. Newman should be commended for adding a lot of suspense to the film. Michael Paré is the standout member of the cast. Paré plays Hollowborn. He's clearly taking cues from Tom Berenger's performance as Sergeant Barnes from Platoon. Tunnel Rats 1968 features one of the early performances by Nate Parker. Parker was in the spotlight in 2016 for his feature film debut, Birth of a Nation. He also appeared in The Great Debaters, Secret Life of Bees, and Red Tails. Tunnel Rats 1968 is a fantastic war film that centers on one of the most unenviable tasks put upon the young men in the military. Between the cinematography and the surprisingly good improv among the cast, this is one of the absolute best films in the career of Uwe Boll. If you only want to put yourself through one film of his, this is definitely the one to watch. Doctor, I assume you've got something interesting to show. He can fight harder and longer than any human soldier. You say you can't control it? You're making brainless monsters. Don't you think it's a little far-fetched? It's too good of a story to pass up. I'm calling to confirm that you were able to get that boat captain. Special army, my ass. He's a drunk. I'm just the driver. Just a simple boat man. I haven't said anything about being simple. You're a sick, egotistical maniac. Let's not go over the top. investigating reports of experiments in super soldiers. Her source, Max, is her uncle and served in the special forces. She needs a boat to take her on an island where these experiments are supposedly taking place. The captain taking her to the island is Jack Carver. Carver is a former member of the special services himself and Valerie is convinced he knew her uncle. When they arrive on the island, they are immediately under attack. Max was exposed and mercenaries were expecting them. Valerie and Jack are captured. Valerie is forced to have dinner with Dr. Krieger, the mastermind behind the super soldier program on the island. Max, now a mutant, is unleashed to take out Jack. 
Jack tries to help Max remember who he really is, which eventually leads to Max coming back to his senses enough to help Jack take down Dr. Krieger. I would categorize Far Cry as being closer in quality to House of the Dead as opposed to Alone in the Dark. It's a basic action film that the cast elevates on their star power. The action doesn't stand out when compared to classics like Commando or contemporary selections like Punisher Warzone, but it's decent enough to get viewers through. This middling impression makes it one of the least worst films in Bull's filmography. Surprisingly, the film manages to follow the basic premise of the video game. Jack Carver? Check. A journalist named Valerie? Check. Island that's a site of experimentation? Check. Dr. Krieger? Check. While House of the Dead and Alone in the Dark vaguely resemble their source material, Far Cry is actually closer than one may think. Till Schweiger plays the role of Jack Carver. He gives a no-nonsense performance that recalls action heroes of the past, like John McClane. Schweiger is best known for his work on Inglorious Bastards and Atomic Blonde. He was my choice for Cable in Deadpool, too. And given how things turned out, I would say I wasn't wrong in that, <laughs> in that suggestion. Emmanuel Vaugier takes the role of Valerie Cardinal. I know her mostly from CSI New York as Detective Angel. She does fine as Valerie. In supporting roles, you have Michael Paré, Clint Howard, Ralph Moeller, and Anthony Bourdain. Yes, that Anthony Bourdain. Udo Kier chews up the scenery as Dr. Krieger. We need more Udo Kier. The man deserves more work. Far Cry is another bad selection that isn't that bad, which makes it a proper bookend with House of the Dead. When you watch it, just let it drift over you. There are far worse bowl films to watch. Many I've covered and haven't covered. You won't regret watching Far Cry, but you won't remember it in days later. And that finishes this look at five good and bad films of Uwe Boll. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, now for another segment of The Three Tenors. Here, John and I share our favorite animated characters. Sempre un amabile, leggiadro viso, in bianco e in riso, e menzognero. La donna è mobile, vuol più malemento, muta la certa, Host of the Mac and Movies here, as always, with John Cleveland. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is another installment of the Three Tenors, where we are going through Rob Hill's top ten lists for movies. Uh, we go ahead and take a look at his list, and we uh, have a ten, top ten of our own. Yes, we often disagree with Mr. Hill. Yeah, although the, the book's a good number of years old, so it's probably going to not be the most current. But still, yeah. it's it's he's not uh, immune from scrutiny. Very true. Very true. All right, uh, for this one, we're going to do top ten animated characters. Ooh, a fun one. Yep. Uh, always got a soft spot for animated characters. Just Yeah. Uh, all right, let's see what Mr. Hill has for his top ten animated characters. Number ten, Puss in Boots from, with Antonio Banderas. From Shrek. Mm-hmm. Basically, Antonio Banderas in cartoon form. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's just him having more fun with Zorro. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, number nine, Kaneda from Akira. I don't, that is an interesting one. I don't know if I'd say favorite. That's more interesting, yeah. but okay. 
Uh, number eight, Jack Skellington from Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, I honestly thought he'd probably have put that higher, but mm. yeah, I can see it. Yeah. Uh, number seven, Elsa from... Uh, Frozen? Yeah. Yep. I don't know why I was drawing up Blake. Maybe because I've tried to black that movie from my memory for so long. Well, just let it be. You'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I saw, what you, I saw what you tried to do there. I, yeah. yeah, well, Disney succeeded, so, yeah. <laughs> Number six, Gromit from oh, Wolves and Gromit. I love Wolves and mm-hmm. Gromit. It's an uh, interesting choice yeah. on his part. Uh, number five, Cruella de Vil. Ooh. She is a Disney villain. Yeah. Not my, She's an odd choice. Yeah. In my, like, she definitely stands out, and like most Disney villains, they are the coolest part of yeah. the Disney film. And they usually have the best song. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's weird because she is just not the one I would have chosen if, if you're only going to yeah. choose, like, one of them. I probably would have gone with Gaston, personally. As Disney villains go, I don't know. I'm Ursula's pretty cool. And then, obviously, Scar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, like, and there's a whole mess that we might get to yeah. later in these lists. <laughs> but, like, that's interesting. It's an interesting choice for Cruella DeVille. Number four, Baloo from The oh, Jungle Book. I love Baloo. Yeah. Although, I gotta say, I am kind of partial to the the live-action, well, live-action CGI-heavy remake, but just because it's Bill Murray's Baloo. Yeah, although, in all fairness, all he does is channel the original yeah. Baloo. There's no... It's Bill Murray reading the script from the other one. It's not Bill Murray being himself, you know, in, which, I don't know, maybe it is, because he kind of is Baloo. Yeah. It's, it's an odd take. <laughs> but uh, but it's Bill Murray, so it's always fun. Yeah. Uh, number three, Buzz Lightyear. Oh, God, no. Nah, not, not, not the one I would have picked from Toy Story. Yeah, not... Nah. No, I, he's he's okay. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It's it's not that. It's just I would never have him in my top ten. Mm. Okay, now here's a controversial one. Number two, Homer Simpson. Eh, I, I mean, th- I think of him as too much of a TV character and not a movie character. Yeah, I mean he's he's in one movie. Mm-hmm. Like that's. Um, I mean, technically it counts if it's about film and yeah. everything. I know I def- definitely did not include TV characters, or my list would be completely different. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason Homer isn't on mine, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. is because realistically, yeah, Homer Simpson is a TV character. His one movie did not shine in that yeah. regard, in my opinion. And last but not least, uh, Totoro from my neighbor Totoro. Uh, I am I am completely I'm lacking my Miyazaki consumption, so I gotta get I gotta catch up on that. But I, I am familiar with how popular this character is. Yes, I uh, I can see him being on the list. Uh, it's not surprising he had one. Uh, of uh, those characters from that film or any of of the films on there. Uh, It wouldn't have been my choice, but I can definitely understand why it's there. Miyazaki is a a fan favorite for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. All right, and that is Rob Hill's top ten, so go ahead, John, and grace us with your top ten. Okay. As stated, uh, these will just be from movies. I'm not dipping into anything, so no Philip J. Fry or Bender or... Mm -hmm. Anything, not just in Futurama. Okay, so my number 10 is actually Wallace and Gromit. I have a tie <laughs> because I can love Wallace and Gromit. Uh, the Curse of the Were-Rabbit is hilarious. All of theirs is hilarious, but I, I have a special place in my heart for Curse of the Were-Rabbit. It's just, it's great. They're a lot of fun as comedy duos are. Yeah. And I remember uh, months ago reading a news article about the scientists developing like a, uh, a device that you can put on that allows people who can't walk to walk. And I thought... Oh my god, this is the wrong trousers. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, number nine, and this, I almost put this as higher. I, I, I had to bump it down because although a character and a very good character and a very good movie, 
lack of dialogue and everything like that, and not as much emotion, although the parts that are emotional are incredibly emotional, ended up making it a little lower on the list. I have The Iron Giant, voiced by Vin Diesel mm -hmm. in The Iron Giant, or as someone said, the best Superman movie ever made. <laughs> I don't agree with that, but it's an amazing film. If you've never seen it, I highly suggest it. It's... The ending especially is just amazing. And it's pre-Incredibles Brad Bird. Yes. So. Yes. Good call. Good call. Okay. So uh, my next one, uh, speaking of Miyazaki, uh, just anime in general. I'm going to mispronounce her name. Asitaka. Sorry, his name. Asitaka uh, from Princess Mononoke. It's the lead, the lead uh, character in Princess Mononoke. Well... Arguably the lead mm -hmm. character, the one you spend the most time with, uh, the cursed uh, character. Uh, such a great film, groundbreaking. It was the first anime I ever saw that made me. I've never been a big fan of anime because um, my exposure to it was stuff like Dragon Ball Z and Princess uh, stuff on cartoons, and and I, I just don't like that style. I don't like the storytelling elements that they have, and I hate certain aspects of the artistic style. Somebody's like, you don't like anime. Have you ever seen any, you know, movies? And I'm like, I'm thinking they're just movies of that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. no, he sat me down. He's like, you need to watch Princess Mononoke now. I heard Princess Mononoke, so I'm thinking it's a Sailor Moon kind of thing. Ah. Like, All right, I'll sit down, but I'm, I'm going to hate it. <laughs> An hour and 20 some odd minutes later, I get up and be like, that was that movie was amazing. So and I've gone back to it several times. It's just a great character in a great film. So number seven. Five Mouskowitz from an American tale. I loved it as a kid because it was a cartoon and it was fun and there were songs and animals. As I got older, I loved it for a completely different reason because there is so much storytelling being told in that. that. And it's not... It's, be it's a beautiful cartoon to watch for children, in my opinion, because they don't, they don't get what's being talked about, but it lets them start to understand what's being mm -hmm. talked about. And it's a really heavy cartoon when you know what's going on. Um, so that's that's for me. Uh, some people think it's a little too hardcore, but yeah, it's to each their own. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of a little uh, cartoon, uh, animals, uh, number six is probably arguably also a lot of people's number one. This is arguably the most popular, or, no, this is the second most popular, maybe mm -hmm. third most popular on my list. Or Roger Rabbit yep. from uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, groundbreaking film. Uh, the use of animation or cartoons and people, almost seamless. Yeah. So good. The movie is still hilarious to this day. I'll watch it with a group of my friends. It's, it's one of the movies where I know I don't need to ask the people if they like it. Mm -hmm. I bank on them liking it. I don't know anybody who doesn't yeah. like that film. And it just said recently that the, the animator of the film uh, recently passed away. Yes. All right. Number five, uh, we went from something a little heavy to something rather fun to, again, we're going back to something heavy, Napoleon from Animal Farm. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, I don't know. I just, I, 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 as a kid, I love the story. I haven't any idea why it makes no sense a child shouldn't really like that story. It doesn't lend itself to the funness of stories, but um as I grew up, I just started realizing how incredible the story was and of all things, I was drawn to Napoleon for all reasons. I think he's a very interesting, dynamic character. 
and obviously we all know that it's not about just animals taking over a human farm. Yeah. It's a it's an indictment of Stalinistic communist regimes and yeah. dictatorships in general. Um, just it couldn't be told directly because of the politics of the time. Uh, but it's a it's a great story, and I don't know. I've, every time I rewatch it, I just find that portrayal of Napoleon compelling to the point where I really enjoy him as an animated mm-hmm. character, ignoring his opinions and lack of morals or morals or whatever you want to say about his story. I just think he, mm-hmm. the the portrayal of the character is very very compelling. All right. Uh, that was the number five. So next is number four. This one, um, this is again almost like not a good one for kids, but I loved it as a kid. Schmendrick, the magician from The Last Unicorn. Mm. A highly, highly underrated uh, non Disney animated film. I think that's probably why most people don't know about it because yeah. people are obsessed with Disney and don't realize that other people can draw. <laughs> um, the entire soundtrack done by <laughs> the band America, which is odd. Um, somewhat iconic song now called The Last Unicorn that I think a lot of people may have heard and never realized there's a movie associated with it. Uh, great voice acting work. Jeff Bridges, Mia Farrow, like every, Jeremy Irons, I think, everyone on cast is like an amazing actor who just so happened to go, yeah, I'll do voice work for this. It's great. Also just great. If you're an adult, if you like the Dark Crystal, if you like kind of like, not scary, but more adult themed cartoons and stuff like that, I would highly suggest The Last Unicorn if you've never seen it. All right. Top three. All right, the big ones. Uh, yes, the, yes, the big ones. Madame Suva from the Triplets of Belleville. I, I mentioned before that the Iron Giant has a really emotional ending. I have never seen a cartoon with a more emotional ending than the Triplets of Belleville. It's a French animated uh, film. Uh, the year came out, the song... Uh, I think it's Bondez-vous. It's French. I'm going to mispronounce it. I apologize. But there's a song associated with the Triplets of Belleville because in the course of the film, um, they meet three uh, triplets who were, of course, the triplets, that sing, and they have this song, and it's very catchy. I remember that's the year it came out. For like two or three months, that song was super popular. It was on, um, I actually think I heard it on the radio once. Um, It was all over online. And then just it kind of disappeared. It went to the the you know the the annals of history, as it were. But I'd highly suggest looking the the movie up. It's there's not a lot of dialogue. Um, Madame Suva, a matter of fact, she doesn't speak at all. Uh, I don't actually think there's that much dialogue in any character in the film. It's not about dialogue. It's about the actions of the characters because the entire point of it is her son grows up. Um, the parents die. She raises her grandson. He studies. He wants to be in the Tour de France. He idolizes the the, the French bicyclist. So he grows up, and he's a bicyclist. Well, the mob gets involved, and they kidnap a bunch of bicyclists to run like a casino kind of thing, where they put them on bikes, and they're they're betting who goes faster and stuff like that. And she goes to save him. This little uh, spunky old uh, French woman who's like maybe three feet tall. It's it's glorious, <laughs> and you know it's 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 a great story. It's hilarious, and uh, yeah, it'll make you cry at the end. It's a uh, Pretty pretty sad ending, but it's one of those happy sad endings. Mm-hmm. So, all right, all right. Number two, no more, no more sadness. Well, <laughs> kind of no more sadness. The joyfulness right. is over. The joyfulness is over. I like my cartoons. Pain. Okay, so number two, Baloo the Bear uh, from the Jungle Book, because it's arguably one of Disney's best uh, animated features. Mm-hmm or features period it's arguably one of the best songs the bare necessities oh, yeah. and just it's he's a lot of fun like he he he's character he's clearly a character who 
it's all about being yourself, doing what you want, having fun. But the minute he needs to defend his friend, he's right there taking on, you know, the monkey king <laughs> or, uh, you know, a tiger of all things. Like, he's just, he's there to defend his friends, but he's also there with the concept of let's have fun. You got to live your life. So I just think that's a great you know, stance to live by per se, but, uh, but it's just a, it's a fun cartoon. It's fun, yeah. fun movie. And I remember spending many of the afternoon watching Tailspin. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Highly underrated, underrated cartoon. Yes. Uh, or, uh, Disney's Robin Hood where he's effectively also, uh, uh, little John. Yeah. Like <laughs> I've actually seen a meme recently where it's just Tailspin and, uh, Robin Hood and Jungle Book, and it's just a then it's a meme from Quantum Leap talking about his next leap will be his leap home because <laughs> it's it's they're all based based on the same character and they all have the same voice actors so uh, it kind of lends itself. All right, number one, and this is one where like I don't I've mentioned other ones might be num- number one or other people say realistically when you get down to brass tacks yeah. I you would have to explain to me why this isn't the best. It's the genie from Aladdin <laughs> played. Amazingly by Robin Williams. There's when I wrote the list, I wrote it, I wrote that as number one, and then I went like, oh, okay, what else needs to be on the list? Yeah. Because it's just not even like there's no one who compares to the energy he brought to that character, the the sheer creativeness that he brought to the character, and the iconic nature of it all. Like to the to point where like, and I like Will Smith, and I think he's very charismatic, mm-hmm. but like all he can do is be in the shadow of that character. Yep. And I just think, especially somebody of uh, roughly my or your age group or anything, like, he is just a large part of our childhood. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that'll ever change. I think he's always going to be Disney's best character. Really, really good selections right there. Thank you. Kind of oddball choices, admittedly. All right, for my animated characters, uh, number 10, Lord Farquaad, uh, played by (laughs) John Lithgow and Shrek. (laughs) Poor guy. Yeah. He, he's like that uh, guy who's the the bagel guy that was like only that's like five feet and complaining about how women don't talk to him. Oh yes, <laughs> that's all I can think of now when I think of Lord Farquaad because he's just like a one long short person joke. Yeah, I always find the movie funny though because the whole point of the film is that you shouldn't make fun of people based on their appearance, yeah. and all they do is rip on Farquaad for being yeah. short. Uh, Napoleon complex, if there yeah. ever was one. Uh, Which is ironic. Napoleon not he was actually tall for his for yeah. his age, for his age. It should be called the Farquad complex. <laughs> uh number nine, Kelsifer, voiced by Billy Crystal in Howl's Moving Castle. It's oh. Billy Crystal doing his shtick in a Miyazaki movie. Yep. What, what more could you ask for? Yep, no, great stuff. Uh, uh, number eight, Z, voiced by Woody Allen in Ants. Uh, similar premise as Crystal, it's Woody Allen doing his neurotic shtick, but it, it fits perfectly in the ant colony. Yeah, my problems with Woody Allen, but I do admit mm-hmm. that was a good movie. Number seven, Roger Rabbit, voiced by Charles Flesher for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Because of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I grew up on Warner Brothers. I was never mm-hmm. a Disney kid. Ditto. But, uh, Roger Rabbit was the first Disney character that caught my attention. Yes, which is ironic because mm-hmm. he was basically invented for the film. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, number six, The Sheriff of Nottingham by Pat Buttram in Robin Hood. Uh, that Just that southern drawl with that cracking voice of his. It, it, it's an unusual approach for the character, but yet it's still infinitely entertaining. Yes, I, I, I remember getting older and wondering, why is this the, the Sheriff of England <laughs> southern? It never made sense. 
But I didn't ask because that 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 is my favorite Disney animated feature. Just side note there. <laughs> but like, no, it's a Jehoshaphat trigger. Yeah. So good, so good. Uh, number five, Rekgar, voiced by Eric Idle for Transformers the movie. Uh, irreverent, nonsensical, <laughs> but just entertaining as all hell. Just regurgitating TV slogans and one-liners. Yes. It's a bit part, but then again, I think it's some of Eric Idle's best work out of Monty Python. I, you know what? I, I'll agree with you. I think he might have been the best character in that. That was a very traumatic movie <laughs> oh, for us. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> Optimus, no. <laughs> uh, number four, Scar, voiced by Jeremy Irons for The Lion King. Yes. Uh, the bravado, the sneaky charm. He can adapt to different tones of different scenes. I mean, you have the one scene where he's completely evil, and then there's the other scene where he's talking with Rowan Atkinson as the toucan, and it's just absolutely hilarious. Yes, no, great, great villain. Ar- again, arguably one of Disney's best villains. Uh, number three. Okay, now, I'm going to disagree with Mr. Hill. I put Woody, voiced by Tom Hanks from Toy Story, as the better character than Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. His arc isn't as interesting, I think, but we- and weirdly it does parallel. Mm-hmm. Because Woody obviously, or uh, Buzz comes to the realization, or has to come to the realization that he is just a toy, he's not the savior of the universe. Yep. The thing is, though, Woody also has to come to the realization that they're no longer the favorite toys. Yeah. Yeah, the, the theme of rejection, which is very, it's universally relatable. Yes. All right, number two. Now, there's going to be some people that might uh, disagree with this, but I picked Bugs Bunny, voiced by Mel Blank for The Merry Melodies. Uh, because these cartoons were first shown theatrically before they were shown on television, so I think they can count. There's also been in a, a, a fair amount of movies. I don't mm-hmm. know if they full count because most of them are just let's take cartoons to the feature length thing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if if anything, I will agree that the fact that it's arguable Mel uh, Blank is one of the best voice actors, if not the best voice actor in history. Oh yeah. Um, I you can look online right now and find people like more contemporary people like us, Seth. Um, and not Seth MacFarlane, Seth, uh, uh, Family Guy. Oh, okay. Seth Green? No, uh, sorry. Oh, uh, Seth MacFarlane. Yeah. It is Seth MacFarlane, yeah. I apologize. Okay, so Seth MacFarlane talking about how they all sat around the studios uh, trying to do stuff where they would replicate certain scenes. where Because they all often, uh, the voice actors will do the same characters. Mm-hmm. And they realized they couldn't do it the same way that Bugs and... Uh, like I don't even think of Daffy could do it. Like he could bounce his characters, and then he'd do it where Bugs was playing Daffy's voice, and Daffy was doing Bugs's voice, making fun of each other. Yeah, and he's like, it is incredibly hard to do one of your characters as making fun of another character, but to be able to switch back and forth between them, mm-hmm. he's like, we couldn't do it. And Mel Blanc's just a legend in the industry. Legend, just legend. Uh, and you know, Bugs Bunny just—he was like one of the first like guys to really do sarcasm as oh, an yeah. art form before oh, yeah. Bill Murray, before any of these other like live-action comedians. Yeah, when I think sarcasm, I think of uh, Bugs Bunny. I, to me, he invented it. Obviously, he mm-hmm. didn't invent it, but to, yeah. to a child's mind, you know. And number one, the genie, voiced by Aladdin, uh, voiced by Robin Williams in Aladdin, because of course, yeah. Uh, and it's a mad, it's Warner Brothers character in what would have been a very milquetoast Disney film. Yeah, yeah, I think take take uh, the genie out of it, and it's not an incredible film. It's a good film. There are yeah. there are parts that are standard, but it would not have held up over time. It would not be one that has been re-released like ten times. Nah. So. Alright, so those are our uh, top tens for animated characters. Uh, yeah. Let us know who your picks are. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we have missed 
hundreds mm-hmm. of options. Even just the Miyazaki, I almost feel like he could have his own top ten. Oh, yeah. But there are so many that we missed. Feel free to comment. Yep, and uh, as always, we'll go ahead and we'll have another one of these top tens uh, loaded up in the next few weeks or so. Uh, until then, this is Mackenzie Lambert. And John Cleveland. And take care, folks. Bye. And that finishes this episode of Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. Next time, we'll be taking a look at films that were suggested to me by various film Twitter accounts and in comments for my Facebook page. It will be a film review requests on the week of December 8th. If you enjoyed this program and want to see it grow, a one-time donation via PayPal would be most appreciated. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of that in the description below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Mac and the Movies. Take care, folks. Mm-hmm.